Market moving insight and analysis. Join Jim Cramer, David Faber, and me, Carl Quintanilla, on the opening bell hour of CNBC Squawk on the Street. Good Monday morning. Welcome to Squawk on the Street. I'm Carl Quintanilla with Jim Cramer the New York Stock Exchange. David Faber is in L.A. for the Milken Institute Global Conference. A lot to get to with David this morning. We are looking for some follow-through after the best week for stocks in three months, but pre-market is weak. Oil near 84. Got a miss on China GDP. Downgraded Disney. We'll get to all of that. Our roadmap begins with WTI, highest level in seven years. Some traders are betting on $100 crude before year-end. Got that big call out of Barclays cutting Disney, says the growth for Disney Plus has, quote, slowed significantly. And the Milken Institute Global Conference is back. As you just saw, I will be interviewing a slew of guests, including Mike Worth of Chevron and Carmen DeCibio of EY. That's just this hour. You can as well see what's coming tomorrow, guys. So nice to be back in person, even if we do have the mask police on our butts over here. Back to you. David, I think that you have the most important guest that we could have. You've got Mike Worth, and Mike has been trying to decarbonize at the same time. He's making a fortune on the oil side. I think it'll be interesting to see whether he wants to start returning capital, like, say, a Devon, or whether he wants to go all in and spend that additional money that he's been spending. Remember, he went from $3 billion to $10 billion on decarb. He's the man of the day. Yeah, and you had him on recently, of course, uh, Jim, as well. But a great morning to speak to Mike Worth. Uh, particularly given that move in oil prices, which I'd love to sort of hear your thoughts on as well as we watched at least a little while ago, WTI climbing well above 80, not to mention the 10-year at 162 or so at this point. Uh, also, David, you have Carmine DeCipio, uh, who runs EY. He can be a truth teller about who is really decarbonizing and who is, uh, say, greenwashing. And you know we need to know that because there's a lot of companies saying they're doing the right thing. How many are doing the right thing? Yep, there's Carmine. He will be joining us as well. Carl, I get the feeling that Jim would like to be here with me. I don't know, but I, you I know, know, just that, just based on that, yeah, it sounds like he I, wants to be I here think, doing these interviews too. I think the next time um, I go to Code or you go to Milken, I think we got to bring you along. What do you say? Well, I just think that any <laughs> any football team out there is better than mine. I'd like to be out there and have a second team. <laughs> uh, well, your discussion, guys, to start off the hour about energy uh, is interesting because there's a lot of discussion, Jim, this morning about what it's going to take uh, to get investment back in the space. Uh, these guys have ESG pressure. Uh, they've got the memory of the last crash. And they have rates that are not subsidizing production investment the way they had the last decade. At, at the same time, uh, there are a lot of free riders. I mean, if you're a Devon and you've helped cut back, or if you're a pioneer and you've cut back, Whatever you're selling left is 100. Now, by the way, the five-year curve has not changed. I mean, there's still it, a lot of people still expect oil to retreat to the 50s. As this goes on, it, that makes it makes it harder and harder because it doesn't seem like there's new oil from Mexico, no new oil from Venezuela. Uh, Saudis holding back because they have to pay big dividends. We're holding back. I want to know who's being aggressive. Iran and Iraq don't seem to be moving anything. And then we haven't even talked about natural gas today. We all have to. Can you imagine we're worried and we have to hope that it doesn't get cold this winter? I mean, that's really going to help us. We, we, we're definitely looking at uh, we could use a little a little warming this winter. Yes. Uh, you got U.K. gas prices up double digit this morning on some doubts that Russia is going to really make those supply promises that Putin talked about last week. We always thought we meaning, say, the Shreve Sukis of the world who started Shinir used to come on Mad Money all the time, that it was just a, a, a thin thread gas promise. 
that it, can Europe really let itself be controlled by the uh, Russians? And we're seeing more and more. For instance, there's a story I read this morning about how Putin is, this is the worst for journalism ever. And I, and I find, like we still listen to Turkey, right before things get really out of control, you do not want, they're, they're crushing the free press, whatever free press there is. And I think that somehow the big countries are hostage to them. I mean, you know, we, we're, that's just not, you know, we're, we're in trouble if all of Europe slows because Europe is making a comeback. We can't have that happen. Right. Um, you mentioned the curve. Gabelli the other day tweeted out just just the table of the curve, and you're absolutely right. We're not looking for uh, contango the way right. you would expect if things were going to get worse over time. So this story in the journal about options traders looking at $200 Brent, do you think it's silly or not? Uh, I think that that is often a signal that you're closer to a top than a bottom um, in the same way that I think that, that Bitcoin, everyone's so excited because, of, you know, crypto because it's about to have an ETF and people try to run ahead of an ETF and then sell it. I think the options guys are trying to run ahead of, say, a $100 oil and then sell it. And a lot of times you don't get what you wish for. I do see when one of the things that made me feel like, well, hold on, are we getting late here? I saw an Occidental upgrade. I mean, Occidental have been the most hobble of all because they they spend so much money at you know, buying, buying Apache. But I've got to tell you that Everybody's so bullish. It's really starting to worry me. I'm not buying Apache, buying Anadarko. I got to tell you, Anadarko. Yeah, Anadarko. One of the things I really worry about, Carl, is that everybody is bullish on every single asset. They're bullish on oil. They're bullish on crypto. They're bullish on stocks. I see bullish people bullish on bonds. David, what are people bearish on? Tell me what they're bearish on. Because I see (laughs) bullish on bonds. Tell me. Give me something people are bearish on. Let me think. Uh, they're bearish that uh, inflation will uh, calm down. They don't think that will be the case. Can I say that? Is that no, reversing that's, something else? That's the, yeah. No, that, you can't say that. If you were here, I would have to just right. explain to you that, you know, that's the point, is that if everybody's bullish on everything, then inflation's going to raise quizzically you. at me. Yeah. I know. Uh, I mean, well, that's, we that's can not see. What I we mean, want. that's, yeah. No. That's not what we want. We, you and I have gone back and forth on the transitory nature of inflation now for about a year, which we're getting to the point where I guess the question answers itself, right? Um, right. What is it? Res ipso locutor? I mean, you know, at this point, it, it, it would appear it's no longer transitory. And the question is when it will start to abate um, and whether it will be years uh, uh, to come. Not to mention, of course, back to energy, Jim and Carl, what that will do. Uh, I know we take it out as a component, but it's certainly an important part of uh, what people pay for every month. Well, one thing, Carl, that I think that people have been thinking about with oil, why it's going to be go down five years from now, is the decarbonization of cars. I mean, there are some notes today about how Tesla remains a big winner. But uh, Benioff tweeted about the Ford Mach-E. And Ford making his, I know, he says it's better than everything other than his, well, he's got 17 cars and he puts it up there with the I don't know, Ferrari, <laughs> Lamborghini, Lamborghini. I mean, how can you have as many cars? Well, I guess you could have a lot of cars if you wanted to. We need, uh, we need 16 million. You know, we could use That's 16. That's true. Yeah. But Tony Saganegi from Bernstein has one of those notes from 10,000 feet, uh, positive and negative. <laughs> <laughs> Easy there. <laughs> David, uh, I see positive and negative from Tony. I don't have a lot of positives on Disney, David. Now, you're out there. So, I don't know. Do you have, like, some sort of... Karma move on Disney out there? Yeah, I can I figure if I yell here, here's me better. Closer to, 
being closer to uh, to headquarters for the for the great company. I mean, listen, we've talked, we we've uh, mentioned the note here that downgrade this morning to equal weight over at uh, at Barclays, guys. Um, I, I I don't know, Jim. Uh, they talk about the expansion over the last couple of years in terms of the multiple, uh, and obviously right. we've talked a great deal about it. Trades off of streaming, it trades off of Disney Plus. It has been an incredibly successful launch for that service. Obviously, it's becoming more difficult to add anywhere near at the rate of growth that they had initially. Um, But you tell me what this stock is really going to be valued on. Now, by the way, it had an incredible 2020, but to be fair, it has not had nearly as strong a year this year. Well, look, I think that a year ago, we would have been saying, Carl, that Netflix might be finished. And now people are buying VF Corp off of vans because of how great Squid is. So I just think the idea of Disney being so-called finished means that ESPN's lower in valuation and that Disney Plus can't come up with anything. I think that's quite... I'm, like, I'm not asking for an eighth dwarf or anything. Right. I mean, Barclays isn't saying they're finished. They're saying there might be some risk to the long-term Yeah, but, guy. you know, I think that that guy's got to be made to eat crow. <laughs> okay. Right? Well, do I you, think Chapek must make him to eat I mean, crow. The chart shows pretty clearly they have the lowest number of titles of the major streamers, well, and their point is they got to double it to get anywhere near Netflix. Well, and I think they have the work cut out for them, but I still think that that you have four or five times over subscription of theme parks. And I think that the model is, well, theme parks are good, or maybe you don't need everything going at one time. My charitable trust owns Disney. I'm steadfast. I'm steadfast owner of Disney. I think that this thing, it remains a great long-term story. We're going to find out uh, in the coming weeks, obviously. It's going to be a very big week for streamers as we'll get uh, earnings from the likes of Netflix tomorrow. In the meantime, don't miss an exclusive with Chevron CEO Mike Wirth, as we were just hearing about from David out of Milken. Uh, We are going to watch futures here, again, coming off the best week in a few months, but some negative uh, tone this morning on the China eco data and obviously inflation concerns. More Squawk on the Street in a moment. Don't go away. Welcome back to Squawk on the Street. We're live from the 24th annual Milken Institute Global Conference. Of course, we are in Los Angeles and uh, very happy to be joined right now uh, by the man in uh, question. Of course, Jim Cramer's jealous. I, I just want to let you know that uh, we have an exclusive now with Chevron's chairman and CEO, Mike Worth. Mike, it's uh, always good to see you and in person as well for the David, first time in a while. It's nice to be here in person. Uh, it's a good morning to have you. I'd lo- love to just start off on the commodity itself, that at least being oil. Uh, up again kind of holding in there in the low mid-80s. Are you surprised at all by the move that's taken place over these last few months? Well, you have to step back and think about how oil prices are set. They're set in a global market. Typically, supply and demand are both big numbers, about 100 million barrels a day, and they move slowly. And so any differences tend to go into or out of uh, storage, and markets are relatively stable. What we saw a year ago is demand collapsed, Supply can't adjust that fast, and so tanks filled up to a point where prices actually went negative. Right. They uh, went negative for a period of time there, they, of course. That was, well, that was the spring of 2020, something they, we've never seen. They were very low for a yep. long period of time, and producers adjust. They, they cut production. They cut capital spending. Yep. Now we're seeing demand come back strongly in, frankly, every sector of the economy except international air travel. And we still uh, see supply responding more slowly. So I think the market's concerned. That, uh, that that supply won't necessarily keep up with the strength we're seeing in demand. And I think that results in this view that uh, 
It needs to be a stronger price. This will hang in there. Well, one of the themes we've discussed many mornings, of course, Jim and Carl and I, is the fact that many producers don't seem intent on putting a lot more money into development right now as, as they do returning it to shareholders. Uh, allocating capital instead to buybacks and or even dividends as opposed to spending. Is that appropriate for this environment? Well, I think there's a couple of things that have changed that, um, that really do affect the rate of reinvestment. Uh, one is government policy, and we certainly see policies that have discouraged future uh, fossil fuel development. And then we also have seen messaging from investors that they prefer a return of cash. Certainly in the exploration production sector, uh, for a number of years, most of the cash generated seemed to go back into growing production, and investors want to see a return on their cash. But we've also seen at annual meetings this year, investors vote uh, for proposals that would actually limit future production. So there are a number of things that are impeding the what I think would be the normal reinvestment behavior on behalf of producers around the world. And I think it's another thing that the market uh, is concerned about. Yeah, well, well, you mentioned annual meetings. I mean, you know, there's a backdrop here of, of escalating external demands in terms of ESG. You've been responding to that. But you uh, also lost the vote, right, to address scope three emissions at your 21 annual meeting. How did that change, if at all, your approach? Well, we've been working on responding to the concerns about climate for for many years. We've set targets. uh, We've met and exceeded targets to reduce emissions associated with our operations. And just last week, we announced a new target to include all emissions, whether it's from the production and manufacturing and transportation of our fuels, or the use of our fuels, so wrapping everything together, setting a target to reduce that. We've also recently announced a tripling of our capital spending to invest in uh, new technologies, particularly in sectors of the economy that are difficult to electrify. So this is things like aviation, marine transportation, heavy-duty on-road transport, manufacturing. We want to help develop the solutions for customers in those segments to help them meet their low-carbon goals. Yeah, spending as much as $10 billion through 28. Uh, at the same time, though, Michael, I'm, here, you know, I'm looking at a research report from B of A that was just out uh, last week. They say you're navigating a fine line uh, that increases green investments, but at a scale that does not material in, materially impact a fundamental strategy focused on enhancing a portfolio already anchored on some of the lowest carbon intensity projects in the industry. Is that a fair characterization that you're navigating a fine line? Well, it's a challenging world out there. I think everybody's trying to find a way to help respond to the concerns about climate and at the same time meet the energy demands of the world as it is today. And certainly in a number of different parts of the world today, in Europe, in China, we're seeing uh, the strains on the system to meet the needs of the economy as it is today, even as we're investing for a cleaner energy system in the future. So there's a tension there. And, and we, Are we we're, not hearing enough about transition? I mean, we're starting to, but this idea that we can't just go from one to the other, so to speak, in a period of time that would seem to be at least the expectations of many investors and or people in government. Well, I think you, you bring up a really important point. This will take time and it will take massive investment. And we have a global economy that's dependent upon reliable, affordable energy supply every day. And when there are disruptions to that energy supply from a storm, from some other kind of an event, we see pretty quickly how dependent the world is on today's energy supplies. And so we need to navigate an orderly transition that doesn't put uh, economies, consumers, societies uh, at risk or create concerns about the security of their energy supplies. Or I fear we could 
uh, see some, uh, you know, a loss of some of the support for this right. transition. That uh, All right. we mentioned, of course, your significant increase in terms of spending on these initiatives, as much as ten billion from what had been, I think, three billion originally. Is there a scenario under which you would consider increasing them even more? Is the possibility of a tax on carbon, for example, something that might motivate you to say, you know what, we can allocate even more capital? Sure, absolutely. Look, there are really four big drivers, David, that will govern how rapidly this proceeds. One is policy, so a tax on carbon. One is technology, how quickly can we bring the cost down on some of these technologies. Innovation, how do we integrate technologies in new ways that we haven't before to meet these demands. And then the fourth one is markets and the signals from equity markets, from commodity markets, that are the things that really mobilize capital in, in the marketplace. And we need to mobilize massive amounts of capital if we're going to restructure the energy system. So all of those are, uh, are really important factors. I mentioned the tax on carbon because it's come up again as a possibility given Joe Manchin's opposition to elements of the larger infrastructure bill, if I can call it that. Right. Is that something you think would be embraced by your industry as opposed to perhaps the other initiatives that might have been part of the previous bill? Our, our industries come out in support of a well-designed market-based price on carbon. That can be through a cap and trade. It can be through uh, a carbon tax. Uh, but one that's broad, that engages the entire economy, that's gradual and allows people to adjust to it and, and is durable, would send the signals to both uh, investors in capital, in energy systems, and also to consumers that this, uh, you know, this is a transition that's underway and there's a market signal now to begin to shift behavior. So I think our industry would support that. You know, it's always subject to the details. Meanwhile, you've got to be having a very good quarter with prices for your core commodity above 80 bucks. I mean, you guys have to be generating an enormous amount of cash flow right now, don't you, Mike? Well, we'll, we'll uh, release earnings next week, and, uh, and, and we'll talk about that then. Uh, the, the real run on prices into the 80s has actually only happened over the last few weeks. And yes. so you go back to July, August, September, we weren't in the same environment that we've been in here in October. And so I think uh, industry results will reflect I know you that. won't answer, but I'll ask you again we and where we started. You think we'll stay above 80 for some period of time? You know, a lot depends on the weather as we go through the winter. We're, we're seeing strong prices in a period of time when typically prices soften between the high demand of the summertime and then as you get into the colder winter months when demand tends to firm again. So the fact that we've seen prices actually strengthen at a time when typically they weaken suggests that there's a, a fair amount of support in the market right now. All right. I think I got a yes there. Mike, thank you as always. Really appreciate you Good to be time. with you, David. Mike Worth, Chairman and CEO of Chevron. Carl, over to you. All right, uh, David, thank you very much. Talk about that uh, interview in a few moments. In the That's meantime, great. though, futures are down as we get closer to the opening bell. A busy week ahead with a lot of earnings, names like Tesla, Snap, Procter, Intel, AT&T. We're back in a moment. We've talked about why futures are a little bit weak this morning. The Chinese data, the downgrade of Disney, the inflation and energy concerns. Now industrial production piles on. Actual down 1.3%. Uh, versus an estimate uh, positive for a positive point two. We'll watch that closely. We'll get Kramer's Mad Dash. And don't forget, you can catch us anytime, anywhere. Listen to and follow the Squawk on the Street opening bell podcast. The opening bell in about six minutes.
Time for Kramer's Mad Dash as we count down to the opening bell. watching the movie business. Always love to get the, get a message from Adam, a text. We're talking about Adam, Aaron, the CEO. You wanted numbers? Here are numbers. Really encouraging numbers. And, yes, he is showing you some numbers that showed you that they are finally on the rebound, back to where they uh, where they were in February 2020, some 20 months ago. Domestic industry box office grossed more than $300 million. Uh, biggest uh, total, you know, a couple days uh, weekend numbers are just extraordinary. They're on the rebound. October's been very, very strong. Yeah. So, Carl, I mean, I know this is a meme stock, but the fact is, is that I continue to believe in Adam Aaron. Now, there are a lot of shorts. I, you know, you see them, they come on air, and they will say, this is just, forget it. It can't be. But I say, there's a stock, there's a price, the price is 40 plus, you can sell a million shares there. If it's phony, then why doesn't it drop 10 points if you try to sell a million? And the answer is that I think Adam Aaron is pulling off the miracle. Uh, pretty amazing gauntlet that he's run. Yeah. And now you got further evidence, Halloween kills uh, from our like parent, uh, 50 million North America, as it was also streaming on Peacock, which is a pretty... Uh, Nice, powerful argument for someone who wanted to see that in a the theater. Yes. Also, by the way, can we just say that now that everyone's dumped on Comcast we work for, what's the next move? I mean, everybody who has said something negative has said it. And I find that we get to these points where, all right, we're done. I mean, I think we're close in Disney. I'm doing a lot of work on Disney this morning to say we're close on the negatives uh, being yeah, kind of exhausted. Uh, I'm waiting for someone to say, well, oil's so high that people won't go to Disney, you know, that kind of thing. Oh, Comcast. So we had down 25 cents to start. All right, yeah. I mean, please. I'm looking at Adam Aaron and saying, you may pull it off. We'll see. Uh, Credit Suisse this morning, David, says Q3 uh, for streamers should be the slowest quarter of the last two years across all platforms. They're looking for about 14 million net ads uh, among the, across the coverage. Um, we'll see whether or not it's a, a weak quarter for, for streaming, but we do know that at least Hollywood, where you are, has avoided a, a big labor dispute, which, is got, which would have mm. uh, really halted production. Yeah, and the last thing they want to do right now is halt production, obviously, given the halts that took place as a result of the pandemic and what are still sort of holes and schedules that they're trying to fill for. Uh, but you're right, listen, streaming, when you think about the competition, we talk about it so often, it is the key product for so many of these content companies now, um, and so it will be watched very closely, particularly, of course, with Netflix on this coming. Let's get to the opening bell and the CNBC Real-Time Exchange. At the big board, it's Abbott celebrating its health sciences and nutrition partnership with the Real Madrid Football Club and Foundation. At the NASDAQ, it's Enjoy Technology, a technology-powered service platform celebrating its listing via SPAC. So your thoughts on uh, on Chevron and Faber? Well, look, I thought David uh, excellent interview with with Mike Worth. Uh, Mike is it, becoming one of maybe the spokesperson for the industry. I, uh, Mr. Sheffield is the spokesperson of the high growth ones pioneer. I continue to believe that uh, the the amount of cash these companies are generating, as David said, is extraordinary, and that maybe Mike Worth does offer a variable dividend in addition to the regular dividend, which has become the Devon and Pioneer way to do it. I'm very excited about the group. I keep trying to figure out how does the trust get in. We just never have a day down. I mean, every day you come in and oil is surging. And so we look at what Mike Worth is saying and we say, he's got the cards. He's got the cards in that gas. He's got the cards oil. And where are the people who are going to come in and start selling it? We need a country to commit to another million barrels and no one's doing it. No one's doing it. 
Uh, David, uh, energy is definitely going to be the leader here uh, as we get a lot of the oxys and marathons, EOGs, Hess in the top 10 today. And, of course, Exxon and Chevron both up as well. Uh, I mean, not, you know, less than 1 percent, but uh, given their moves already significant. Uh, energy has been, of course, a, a great performer uh, this year. Uh, certainly that was not the case last year. To take a look at some of the laggards as well. You know, Jim, it's interesting because you know, I went sort of with, all right, cash flow's going up. Maybe you want to even increase your allocation to some of your green initiatives, so to speak. But you went to the idea of why not increase your dividend, which... It's interesting. I mean, and he also, you know, you, you do wonder how much capital can you throw against this stuff? And does it, is it not yet ready for prime time in some way so that you, there's only so much capital that can be expended at this point in terms of the various technologies that they may be pursuing for carbon capture and or other initiatives that they have underway? I think you, you raised a great point, which is that the money's being used for, they're not throwing the money away. They're trying to build new technologies that will take the place of what they have. But, David, it, it, it's kind of like a card game. Do you really, you know, you, you put out, you say, listen, I'm going to do $10 billion. And then you come back and say, I raised myself $2 billion? I mean, I don't think that Mike Worth can raise himself. He just took it from 3 to 10 why does he have to then this quarter take it from 10 to 12? Because, uh, I don't know, he has more money. I think that the real thing to do is to start doing what the other ones do, which is say, you know what, we got to return some of this. We are having a real windfall. Uh, remember the oil windfall tax, David? Wouldn't be something that came back? <laughs> yeah, I can't imagine that. But, uh, but we do have to keep a, a, a close eye on it, obviously. As you look at Occidental, what is Buffett getting on that preferred? Jim, 10%? That's a, a nice, yeah, uh, what, eight change? I don't want to misstate it, but... Was it eight? Uh, yeah, David, it you're right to, eight you're right to bring to that up. Yeah. But, you know, let's do this. Let's take a look at that stock. Uh, and that stock is, David, is doing well enough that if they wanted to, they could issue stock, and people would, people would lap it up. You know, David, they could issue 20 million shares, and, and every hedge fund would buy some, don't you think? Yeah. I think there'd be demand for it. You're right. Even with the stock up almost 100 percent this year. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned dividends. We did get a nice 20 uh, percent div hike out of Albertsons. Oh, what One a quarter. Only grocers you you really will tolerate, given the margins. In the oh, business. well, look, I mean, you're talking about a company that the margins were, you know, they, they were doing very poorly. And, and, and Vivex and Karen has come in there and basically taken it. So look, when you get 220 to 230, now it goes to 250 to 260. Uh, and down, uh, you, know, you were supposed to have down sales for sales. going to be up. What I say, oh, is he coming up? Where's, where's, what we're going to get the 10 a.m., I think. The 10 a.m.? Yeah. He was on my show last time. He's got to spread, so, the, spread the love. He's fickle. But I love him because what he did was take a situation, this is one that is now almost doubled, that everyone had kind of said, you know what, this is hopeless, and just said, you know what, we've got great brand names. We've never lost the customers. We're coming back. Kroger's good. These guys are better. I think it's a terrific story. Tell him I said hi. I uh, tell him I don't miss him, and if he ever wants to come on my show again, I'm going to be doing the investment club and I'm uh, with an ad at 10 of 8 last night, and I love him. <laughs> All right. Oh, I got it. Uh, you know what? I got it. You what, got it? What's that, David? David, you got it? Oh, sorry, guys. Sorry, I forgot I was on TV. It happens. <laughs> you know, it's crazy out here. We're dealing with all sorts of different things, including I didn't have my pen, so I needed my pen. Sure, I got my pen. Pen. 
So we she didn't get arrested by the mass we were... police yet, so that was good. Yeah. They're very strict here, uh, as you might imagine, at course at Milken, which is so focused right. on health and health care. They have been very strict already in terms of having people go around and making sure everybody's wearing an N95, Jim. You would be very comfortable here, even though you're quadruple vaxxed already. Uh, thank you for that. Um, I, I don't know. I think quadruple vaccine, you're suddenly uh, uh, vulnerable. But, David, there is something about California that people seem to be genuinely scared of. I mean, San Francisco and L.A., I thought they had it under control, but they're really treating it as if we're at the height of the pandemic, aren't they? You know, it is interesting because, of course, the caseloads here are, are, are actually quite low. Um, and in speaking to a number of people last night at dinner, the you know, we talk so often about return to office. We're going to talk to Carmine DeCivio as well from EY about that. Uh, in L.A., they have a mandate that you have to wear your mask at all times in the office. So you might imagine that that uh, dissuades a lot of people from even considering coming to the office. The idea being that you have to be masked full time, uh, not even when you're sitting at your own desk in your own office. You are apparently supposed to be masked as well, um, which is, I think, a reason, Carl, why you might not want to go into the office. Uh, and apparently yeah. few people yeah. are here. Well, and now you got uh, Dr. Gottlieb uh, tweeting about um, this new uh, this new variant, variant AY.4. Um, been in the UK since July, he argues. Uh, we don't know a lot about uh, its prevalence or its transmissibility, but he does say it's a reminder we need robust systems to identify any new variants that come along the line and whether or not they have escape immunity. Yeah, ability but I, to I, escape the vaccine. Well, I, look, the late uh, great Colin Powell. When you hear that he passes away you figure, from COVID-related, you have to you presume, well, you know what, he maybe he didn't get vaccinated. He, he he's, was totally vaccinated. he's totally vaccinated. And that scares me. And it should, because what it says is that we, we question the percentage of people who actually are uh, vulnerable. Maybe it's higher than we think. Now, it's fantastic, and I, I know a lot of people are, are handling themselves as if there was never... I mean, I was up in Boston this weekend. You would think that there was no COVID. Just the opposite of California. There's no COVID. And there is COVID. Yeah. Uh, that was the same story uh, in Nashville where I was a couple weekends ago. And, you know, the point is to... The point originally, Jim, was to keep the, the health care system from collapse. Right. And hospitalizations are, have been cut almost in half right. from the highs. Well, look, I... I remain convinced that the peak is here. But I mean, I listen to Dr. Gottlieb and everybody else, and I don't want to change. I want to go. I'm, I'm reverting to my old life. But I was with someone this weekend who said to me, you know what? I may have to go to the office. I said, what? She said, no, I probably have to you know, check in at the office. And I'm thinking, at what point in my career did I ever get to say, yeah, maybe I go, maybe I not? I mean, my whole life, if I'm not there at 7, I mean, there was a moment at Goldman Sachs where I actually was afraid. I went to lunch, but I put my jacket on my chair, lest anyone think I wasn't working. Now it's like, eh, I may have to go. And you're a junior person. I'm thinking of going. How is this possible? Well, I'm you know, thinking of going. Uh, it's, we can, we can uh, hand ring here, David, but Simon Property close to, I think, a new all-time high. You got Morgan Stanley reiterating Jim as a top pick. I so, think Simon's doing terrifically. Yeah. I saw a J.C. Penney that's open the other day. You know, remember, the they're mall. reinventing. David, this yields 4%. Mm -hmm. It's doing incredibly well. And now what do we think about Saks offering its online? Online. What is that, David? Yeah, as we take Simon Property has had a very good move. That's the mall. You know, people won't go to the office, but they're happy to go to the mall. Um, yeah. Uh, Saks, I don't they really have. They go to have, restaurants. You know, a, a, a lot of, yeah. Yeah, right. Uh, 
and that, of course, is, a, again, a, a key question that we continue to come back to. I think uh, it's funny. Uh, a, a number of people I've talked to, like I made the mistake of going to New York thinking I would have a meeting on a Friday. Uh, but nobody's <laughs> in the office on Friday. David. Yeah. David, it's like, I thought I'd spend the three-day weekend. I'd do Friday and then stay, but made a mistake because nobody would see me on Friday. Um, as for the Sachs uh, report, that's a journal story. Uh, Jim, I don't have a, a great deal of thought on it. I mean, the valuation's interesting. Obviously, that company has had no shortage of challenges uh, through the years. Still Hudson Bay, right, we're talking about there. But uh, I don't have much for you. I don't know what your thoughts are. Well, my think immediately is, is that Macy's is worth a ton more because Macy's has a very good online business, David, and uh, they do have a, uh, a brick-and-mortar business that could do very well if we start having foreign travelers. So I thought immediately I just said, okay, Macy's remains undervalued based on this uh, because I don't really think much of Saks brick-and-mortar, but I do think a lot of Macy's brick-and-mortar. Jim, I do want to get yeah. you quickly on um – on Goldman getting full ownership of this uh, Chinese JV. Uh, we're within 10 bucks of a new high on GS. That's coming after earnings last week. Now, we've been saying all along that there has to be an end of these bogus JVs. Now, of course, Goldman's very polite when they talk about the JV, the 17-year joint venture. But I thought that this was a, a very small olive branch. And will the U.S. send something to them saying, you know what, we like the idea of our companies being on, on their own. You know, I don't think this can be one-off. But, Carl, I've got to tell you, Goldman itself it still remains a very low multiple stock. You know, Goldman has people who work there full-time. You know, new five-part uh, bond offer today. Yeah, I like I like Goldman Sachs here. I think that the stock's doing well. David Solomon doing very well. Uh, Mr. Sure leaving as CFO is a big blow uh, because he is a rigorous dynamo. But at the same time, i got to say, you know, Goldman... China could be very big for them, particularly in an era where a lot of their companies seem to be vul- very vulnerable and handicapped. So it's interesting to see this is a good moment to be an American banker over there, I think. You want to put your money. I mean, Goldman, of course, is not really known as a deposit bank. But if I were Chinese, Carl, I would put, I'd put my money there in a nanosecond. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Good piece in The Times about, I guess they're calling it now, competitive coexistence, the relationship, Ooh, if well, we're going to put yeah. a label on it. Uh, between the U.S. and China. Still to come this morning, another Squawk on the Street exclusive this hour. EY's chairman and CEO uh, with David out at Milken. But first, time for the bond report. Tenure did get to 1627 this morning. That's the highest level since October 12. Uh, but it's really about the front end in the last couple of days. We got to 45 basis points. That's a post-COVID high. We're back off just a touch. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Squawk on the Street. We are live from the Milken Institute Global Conference right here in Los Angeles. Joining me now is EY Chairman and CEO, Carmine DeCibio. Great to have you uh, here. You know, a lot of this, the focus of this year's meeting is on ESG, diversity and inclusion. These are obviously areas that you know very well. So I'd love to just start there, Carmine, because you've spoken about, you know, I just sat down with Mike Worth talking about their initiatives at Chevron, but you've talked a lot about how we have to have robust metrics to actually measure all the stuff that everybody promises they're going to do uh, and be able to compare and really know. Uh, Are we anywhere near being able to do that yet? Uh, the, the, The short answer, David, is not really. But here's what I would say on any metrics. First of all, in terms of ESG, you have to really build it into your strategy whatever sector you're in, whatever company you're, you're part of. Because if you're just reporting on metrics and it's just a check-the-box exercise, that's really not going to work in the long run. So I always, we always encourage companies to really 
drive it into their strategy, make it part of the strategy in terms of what they're doing across all ESG. Then when it comes to reporting and the metrics, this is something that we've been working uh, very hard, uh, EY as well as the other big four firms, on really creating metrics that are across ESG, that are more simple, and starting there. We did this with the International Business Council of the World Economic Forum. There are 21 core metrics. We have over 100 companies signed up to report on this. Over 50 have already reported. We at EY have reported as well on the 21 metrics and, and the other big four as well. So we're encouraging people to use this as the building blocks of standards because what's happening is the standard setters are separated out a bit. And my view is that if we're not careful, if we really want more consistency, yeah. we have to work at it. Otherwise, we're going to end up with, at a, at a minimum, two sets of standards, could be more. So we need a global standard. I, I totally and agree. We're working towards standard. that. But I wonder, I mean, it's not as though there isn't an enormous amount of capital already being allocated under the broad banner of ESG right now. Is a lot of that money being misallocated because we don't really have the proper metrics in order to measure what is being done? I wouldn't say that it's being misallocated. I think there's a lot of money actually on the sidelines ready to be allocated. And I think a lot of companies, a lot of private equity firms are looking for the right investments. But there's a lot more to do uh, on that, including, you know, there's, we're, we're working on something with SMI, with Sustainable Markets Initiative, to create more green projects in underserved countries. And this is something we're doing with several CEOs. And we're really trying to drive that. But they need consistency. You know, they need to be able to make sure that their, their investments are going to be safe and so forth. So I, I think there's a lot of money out there. I'm not sure it's being misallocated, um, but it's something that has to be looked at. All right. But so your thought is that if and when we get to these global standards you're talking about that we can be confident about, there will be even more money available for the various efforts that are taking place and or at least it will be allocated to those who are doing the right thing. Absolutely. Absolutely right. Uh, if this is something, when you talk to investors, asset managers, asset owners, there is no doubt that they are very focused, in particular on sustainability. So that's something that they're going to continue to be focused on. And it's something that, that's real. I mean, look, we have to solve this climate problem, David, uh, because if we don't, our, our future generations you know, are, are not going to be in a good place. But it's going to take everyone. It's going to take companies. It's going to take individuals. It's going to take governments to really focus. It's a lot to ask. <laughs> I don't want to be cynical, but that's, that's a lot to ask. It is. It is. But if you look at where we were even just three or four years ago versus now, it's amazing the amount of progress that's been made. Yeah. And, and one of the problems that, that I personally is we have to look at it holistically. Right now, I was talking to one of the CEOs here at the Milken Conference yesterday, and they're like, one of the problems is, Europe only cares about climate, the U.S. only cares about diversity and inclusiveness, and Asia only cares about governance. Uh, and we have to get all that together, really, for it to make sense. Um, speaking about getting things together, are we ever going to actually get employees together in a place that we used to call the office? <laughs> That's a great question. Yeah, at, at, look, at EY, we really are focused on a hybrid model, but we're focused on flexibility. The average age at EY is 27 and a half years old. So they're never coming in. And That's, no, I mean, come on, no, they're not going to show up. No, totally. One of your competitors said they can be, they don't ever have to work. Was it PwC? They, yeah, I mean, totally I, disagree, totally disagree. Our young people, we've done a lot of surveys, our 20-somethings, they all want to be in the office. 
If they care about their career, why aren't they, they in the office the if they all want to be in the office? Because because the more senior people aren't in the office. That's problem number one. Problem number two is in a lot of states, in the United States in particular, we still have these mask mandates. We're talking about we were that just right here in L.A. That. Yeah. And so so no one wants to go to the office and have to wear a mask all day. So we have to get through the mask mandates. But in our New York office, we have a new office in New York at One Manhattan West, right near Hudson Yards. Uh, we're 40, 50 percent capacity. And on Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursdays, it's even more crowded. Right. So we're getting there. We believe we have to have people back together at our clients in offices. You know, we're always going to be flexible in terms of people working from home here and there and and some but jobs have to offer flexibility now. Absolutely. I mean, a CEO been, is going to sit there and say, I expect five days in the office. They're just not going to succeed in that, are they? And or they're uh, going to lose, potentially lose employees. Yes, if you're very, I always say flexibility goes both ways. The CEO, the company has to be flexible and the employee has to be flexible. Whenever either one is not flexible, you're going to run into a problem. But, you know, we at EY, even before the pandemic, we were pretty flexible around this. We had hoteling, we had people working from home, people working at clients. And I think that's where the world needs to get to. But I don't agree with people not being in office, not be, because we need, we need culture, we need people, mentorship. Uh, that's, that's part of our business. I know, but you know, back to measurement, it's funny because so many of the CEOs that I've spoken to say, yeah, but my productivity has been as good as ever. And I bet you would say the same with everybody working from home. And my question always is, well, are you measuring everything that's lost and can you measure it? It's also a short-term versus long-term, David. Short-term, yeah, our business has done well. We've used technology, it's done really well. But long-term, in terms of interacting, training our people and so forth, we need people together. Uh, you know, that's uh, having culture, developing relationships with clients. I mean, there's many stories out there of people going physically to a client and getting the work versus someone who's trying to do it virtually. So the more we hear about those things, the more it'll come back together. But it doesn't, it doesn't have to come all the way back. We should be learning some things from the pandemic. Like, there's no reason for me to go to Singapore for a two-hour meeting anymore. So that hopefully won't happen. But... but I disagree with uh, what our competitor did totally. It's going to be interesting because it's, it's still an experiment, although yeah. I can be pretty sure nobody's showing up on Fridays except me, Carl, and Jim. <laughs> Carmine, thank you. Thanks, Appreciate David. it. And uh, let me send it back to, uh, to Carl and Jim. <laughs> it's true. Yep. It's true, Jim. We've been uh, here since what, June? Uh, we're here. We're here. You know, my, uh, my stepdaughter works for EY, and they're on the road all the time. What can I say? Uh, but uh, Carmine is a good friend, and that was a great interview. Yeah. Uh, thanks, David. That's great stuff uh, to start uh, a few days at Milken. We appreciate it. Uh, Dow climbing off the uh, initial lows of the session. We're down 140. Stop trading with Jim is after a break. It's time for Jim and Stop Trading. So we're trying to figure out what's happened to Zillow. Zillow said that they're not going to be, uh, they're on hold for their home buying project. Remember, Zillow changed its model, uh, and they do more than just uh, more than just prurient, what's my price of my house. And they've been buying, they had acquired 3,800 homes in the second quarter. So the question is, are they pausing because of some technical problems, or are they pausing because you, how much inventory do you really want to carry? If housing, like our friend Ivy Zellman says, who was on last week and really the dean of the group, uh, is peaking. So I saw that this was a very important call because if Zillow says, says it's just technical, fine. But if it's worried about inventory, then maybe that 22% up housing last year, 16% supposed to be up next year, maybe it's time to rethink the housing as the greatest story ever told. 
Uh, that would that would have big implications yes. for the builders and a lot yes. more, Jim. Oh, it sure uh, would. I know you're going to work on that. What's tonight? I've got an outfit called Deluxe. It used to be one of the great growth companies of all time. Uh, Barry McCarthy, CEO. And what I I think is is that let's take a look at this company. It used to be the old che- you know <laughs> currency to check, but they've done a lot more since then. And very exciting show today. Yeah, we didn't even get to Square or Bitcoin. Oh the ETF. my! I, I went to I selling some Ethereum. I mean, and we didn't even talk about Toast. Mostly uh, buys Toast being the way to be able to handle a lot of restaurants' point of sale. Yep, not ours. Not, we'll get it tomorrow or tonight. Yes, uh, Mad Money, six p.m. Eastern time, of course. You've been listening to the opening bell on CNBC's Squawk on the Street. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager.